This podcast is a presentation of University of California Television. Like what you hear? Consider making a donation at uctv.tv slash donate so we can continue to bring you more great programs. Thank you, Lina, for the nice introduction. Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, it's my great pleasure to talk about our research to these diverse students today. So today I'll talk about the sense of direction. So what is sense of direction? It's kind of internal compass that we use to navigate the world. To give you some concrete uh, example, I need a volunteer to come out. Is there someone who want to help? Please raise your hand. Yeah, I saw all the way back, raised hand really quickly. So please come. Thank you. What's your name? I'm Jesse. Jesse? Thank you, Jesse. So just stand here. I will ask you a very simple question. Just don't move. And where is the door? Just point it. Okay, just pick that one. Okay. Rotate 90 degrees to the right. Where's the, where's your, where's the door? Okay, great. Uh, now I'll give you a slim mask. Can you wear it? So that you don't see, you cannot see anything. Uh, if you can, close your eyes even more so that you can't see anything. You cannot cheat. So, where's the door? Okay, that's good. Rotate 90 degrees to your left. Okay, where's the door? Okay, that's pretty accurate. Can you rotate two full rotation? Okay, where's the door? Oh. <laughs> okay, you are not a good example, but <laughs> that's great. Thank you. You can take off your mask. <laughs> Thank you, Jesse. So she is very good sense of direction. Uh, so as you see, our brain develops and maintains and updates the sense of direction as you move. So for example, in a complete dark room, not just my slide, if this room is complete darkness, then you can still find your way to the door because your brain maintains the sense of direction. Okay? And we study the sense of direction using in most cases, rodent's brain. So this is an uh, example, uh, some small sample of neurons of rodent brain, especially mouse. Mouse brain has about 75 million neurons, and the, uh, the one shown here is about a thousand, thousand neurons here. So how do we study these neurons? So the brain has many different small areas that anatomists uh, divided into. Uh, and some areas are responsible for senses like visual inputs, sounds, or smells, and other areas are responsible for decision-making, uh, inference, emotions, and so on. And this colored area here is called thalamus, and this green area is called anterodosal thalamic nucleus, and there, that's where our sense of direction begins. And how do we study this? 
we insert electrodes into the brain and record the neural activity. And how is that possible? It's because neural activity is electrical. So what you are seeing is the electrical activity, specifically the voltage of the membrane of a neuron. And we record this voltage using electron, electrode. And here is a jargon that neuroscientists used. When there is a sudden increase of uh, voltage like this, then we call the neuron fires. And the number of firings per second or frequency of the firing is called firing rate. And what happens in, in this anterodosal thalamic nucleus? In early 90s, Toby and colleagues found a set of neurons they named head direction cells. And I will show you one example. Here, y-axis represents the firing rate of the neuron, and x-axis represents the head direction of the animal in a circular environment here. So let's see how this neuron acts. So when the animal points south, you see the firing rate goes up. Okay, let me show you this again. This neuron has a preferred direction, which is south. Okay, and we can simplify this plot like this, just for simplicity. And there is other, there are other neurons with different preferred direction, like this one, and many others. And the idea is that collectively, these head direction cells represent the sense of direction in our head. And there is a very strong evidence that supports this claim. So let's say we added two color cues like this inside circular arena. So the environment changed, right? And let's assume that this particular neuron changed its uh, preferred direction 90 degree counterclockwise because this is a new environment. Then what you see in other, other neurons is phenomenal. All of them changes 90 degree counterclockwise. Okay? This is very interesting because it strongly suggests that there are, these neurons are connected to each other and there is a very strong interactivity, interoperational activity that allows this kind of coordinated uh, dynamics among these, uh, among these head direction cells. But it has been very challenging to study these neurons in rodents. I told you that this green area, anterodosal uh, thalamic nucleus, is responsible for the head direction. But this is, turns out to be, uh, just a small part of the larger network in, uh, depicted in blue here. This is a diagram of the connections uh, in brain areas, and anterodosal thalamic nucleus is just part of that. And there are millions of neurons involved here. So they are distributed, so they are hard to study uh, in, as a, a whole population. And when, uh, when these were studied like 30 years ago, we could record only from a few neurons at a time, right? So you cannot see the entire neural dynamics. So, how, so to solve this problem, we use slightly different approach. We use the small brain animals like insects. Dung beetles use Milky Way and night 
to guide their direction. Monarch butterflies are well known for their long-range migration in North America. And bees travel long distance for foraging, but they don't have any problem going straight back to their hive after foraging, right? And we are studying fruit flies. Surprisingly, they have brains. Okay? This, is, uh, this is a little bit humiliating, but this is the question that I, ha I have been asked the most time. Do they have brains? Of course they have brains. And flies are very similar to us as well. They make decisions, they attend to something, they court, they learn, they forget, they sleep, and so on. And one very interesting uh, digress here, so very interesting phenomena is this. When a male fly is rejected by a female fly, they drink more, <laughs> okay? They are similar to us, okay? <laughs> and they have a sense of direction as well. And there is a very strong evidence to support it. So the fly in this video, fly is uh, released in a circular arena. This was done in a lab at Caltech. And at the center here, there is a sucrose drop, meaning the sugar, sugar water. Okay. Initially, the fly shows centrophobic behavior, and over time, it uh, explores the central area. And by chance, it encounters a sugar drop. And after that, you can clearly see that their path completely changed. Right? And one interesting experimental condition here is that this experiment was done in complete darkness. And the food doesn't, uh, doesn't have any, any, any smell. So they cannot, the flies cannot use visual cues, smells, and any sensory cues, except proprioception. The proprioception is the uh, position of its own, okay, own body. So mathematically, to be able to walk just around this sugar drop, two components are essential. One is the fly should know where they are, uh, uh, where it is pointing toward, and they should be able to count their steps. Okay, mathematically, without these two, any, uh, without any of these two quantity, you cannot perform this kind of behavior. So this is very strong evidence that flies do have the sense of direction. And this is just an example of the single fly and population data. And you can clearly see the difference between two. Okay, so how do we, uh, how, this, how this kind of function is performed in the fly brain? A friend of mine, a former colleague, Johannes Selig, found a set of neurons he named compass neurons in the central part of the brain. So in the fly head, this is the, uh, this is the uh, cartoon of the fly brain, and at the center of the fly brain, there is a donut-shaped structure called ellipsoid body. And this is the ellipsoid body, and ellipsoid body has many different types of neurons, and one of the most important type among these neurons is uh, compass neurons. The actual name is EPG neurons, which is not important for today's talk. And you can see uh, this is the entire population of these compass neurons. Okay? There are about 50 compass neurons, and you can see that these compass neurons beautifully tiling the ellipsoid body along the perimeter. So how do we study these neurons? So we combine 
the virtual reality and physiology uh, together. So here, we tether the fly and allow the fly walk on an air-floated ball or fly. Okay? Fly cannot move their head or body, but they can move their uh, legs or wings. When the fly is walking on an air-floated ball, we measure the rotation of the ball to, uh, to infer the fly's intention of turning. When the fly was uh, flying, we measure we calculate the difference between left and right wing bit amplitude to infer the fly's intention of turning. And, this, and in this LED arena, this is, uh, each pixel is LED, and we change the pattern so that fly can get a feedback of their motor intention. So we call this a closed loop experiment. Okay? So we close the loop from motor intention to the sensory feedback. So this is basically fly's version of Oculus. Okay. And how do we study these neurons? We just watch it. Okay. We to I told you that we, we use the electrode in rodents. But in flies, and I mean, after a lot of technical development, we can watch it. So after uh, Thomas Hunt Morgan found that the chromosomes has the inheritory, uh, what's that, the genetic code inside the chromosome, there has been tremendous progress in, uh, in fly genetics. And fly has been the most important animal or system for, uh, to study genetics. After about 100 years, now we can replace, remove, add, uh, modify any genes in flies. And there is another tremendous progress in protein technology that allows reporting, uh, sensing and reporting the neural activity. One example is called genetically encoded calcium indicator called GECI, and one of them is GCAM. Uh, okay. So how do we, uh, so Johannes, uh, a, a former colleague of our lab, is uh, actually expressed using all these genetic tools, express uh, GCAM into in the entire population of compass neurons. And this, you will see here, uh, the activity of the entire population of compass neurons, specifically the calcium activity, because GCAM detects the calcium. So when a neuron fires, there's an influx of calcium from the outside the cell to the inside the cell, and then GCAM detects it, it becomes and it becomes uh, fluorescent. So if you shine a light on this protein, you see a bright signal when the neuron is active. Okay? So this activity here says that neurons in this area is active. Let's see how it looks like. So the fly is tethered here. So this is view from the behind. And you can see fly abdomen here, and this is the fly holder. And you can see the leg is moving, uh, walking on top of this, uh, this air-floated ball. And we measure the rotation of this ball to change the scene projected onto the LED arena. And you can see here a small patch of calcium activity moves ar around the ring, okay? moves around the ellipsoid body. And we call this 
simply a bump because the activity goes up and down like a bump. And you can see that this activity bump follows the body orientation of the fly inside the arena. Okay? So we, the flies literally has compass needle inside their brain. Okay? In our brain, it is a little bit different story. All neurons are intermixed with each other, so the location is not as clear as this one. But in fly, those neurons are aligned in a circle, and you can see the compass needle directly under the microscope. So one feature that I want to emphasize here is that the visual Visual input is pretty, I mean, visual scene is pretty cluttered. There are many objects, like three vertical objects and many uh, horizontal objects here. But there is just one single bumper-like activity, activity inside the compass neurons. So this uniqueness of compass bump is a critical feature of these uh, compass neurons. And if you... Uh, if you remember the, uh, what's her name? Uh, Jessie, Jessie's example. Jessie was very good at maintaining the sense of direction in complete darkness, right? So can the fly do that is the next question. So he recorded this compass neuron activity in complete darkness, okay? This LED arena was turned off. And you can see that still, this compass needle moves around ellipsoid body as the fly move around, uh, walking on an air floated ball. So I want you to think about this uh, for a moment. So this small creature, okay, with tiny brain, can maintain the sense of direction, right? Even in clutter, uh, regardless of the sensory input, right? Uh, regardless there is uh, uh, many objects clutter the visual field or in complete darkness. And we also know that, we did another experiment, that this activity is maintained even in flying flies, regardless of the motor context, right? Whether it is flying or walking doesn't really matter. And this beautiful topographic arrangement gives us an opportunity to study how these neurons are interconnected to each other and reveal the structure underneath it. So I'll show you how we did this. Uh, so these are two questions. So how the, uh, how the bump is, uh, the how, how is there just one unique bump even in cluttered visual field? And how the bump is maintained in complete darkness? These are two questions that I want to show you. So before that, I'll give you a very simple diagram so uh, the neur compass neurons are aligned in a circle. So these small circles represent uh, individual compass neurons. And yellow means high activity, blank means low activity. So this is equivalent to this calcium activity. Okay? So let me reiterate the question. How does the compass neurons maintain a unique bump activity, even in a cluttered visual field? So here, fly is flying inside this uh, visual scene. This, uh, this is my artistic representation of mountains, clouds, and trees. And this particular, uh, and the idea is that 
all of these stimulus provide some inputs to the compass neurons. So for example, this particular mountain may provide input to these compass neurons, whereas this uh, tree branch provides input to these compass neurons. Yet we have just one bump, right? These are quiet, these are active. And one possible explanation here is that neurons are fighting each other. And one potential mechanism is called mutual inhibition. So this blue arrow represents inhibition among neurons. And how do we test that? One simple way and straightforward way is to stimulate these neurons, these quiet neurons, and see if this act, uh, the activation of these neurons actually inhibits the existing bump. Okay? So that's what we did. So how do we did that? We used a technique called optogenetics. So optogenetics is another kind of revolution in neuroscience. This particular protein, uh, which is called CS crimson, allows the positive ion flow from the outside of the cell to the inside of cell when it is lit by or shine, shone by red light. Okay? And when the positive ion goes into the neuron, then the, uh, the voltage of this membrane goes up. So the neuron fires. Okay? Now we can control the neural activity using light. And here is an example. We expressed CS crimson in a sugar sensing neurons, which are in the mouth or legs and wings of the, of the fly. And you can see that when we shine the uh, red light to the fly, the fly detects something, something sweet that didn't exist and extend its mouth. So we use the same technique in uh, testing this uh, mutual inhibition in fly brain, so in compass neurons. So these are compass neurons, and you can see the compass needle here, a bump, and I'm going to stimulate this part of the compass neurons. And the goal is to see whether stimulation of this particular population, uh, subpopulation of the compass neurons inhibits existing bump. Okay, let's see. So I'm stimulating now, and you can see the existing bump disappeared, and new bump appeared here. And it stays there even after I stop stimulating. So let me show it again. So this existing bump disappears when I stimulated a new quiet location. And of course, I did this experiment in across many different area, uh, positions of the uh, ellipsoid body. And here, y-axis represents how much ac original activity, original bump activity was inhibited when I stimulated other parts of the ellipsoid body. And you can see that across all distance from the original uh, bump location to the stimulation location, it is inhibited, meaning that there is indeed mutual inhibition among compass neurons. But this is not the uh, end of the story. Um, I told you that um, the activity can be maintained in complete darkness as well, right? So 
how, how is it possible is the question. And there are potentially two, poten uh, two, uh, two mechanisms that can explain this maintained activity in complete darkness. And one is self-recurrent excitation, right? So if a neuron is active, then that activation activates uh, itself again, so the neural activity goes on and on, okay? It increases activity. On the other hand, the second mechanism is excitation between neighboring neurons. It is called the recurrent excitation, uh, how can I say, feedback excitation among neurons. Because if this one is uh, active, then it excites this one, and this one active, uh, activates this one again. So it is combination of act, uh, activation between neighboring neurons. And they have very different predictions when they are uh, subject to some noise. So if you add some noise in this, uh, in this kind of model, what you see is that the bump will jump around. This is the prediction. Okay. Whereas for this kind of model, the prediction is that the bump will wiggling around. Okay? It's like a noisy activity, but it doesn't jump around. Okay? These are two different predictions of these two potential mechanisms. And this one is called the ring attractor. So uh, we tested this uh, in the physiological experiments. And you can see that this doesn't make sense physiologically, right? So ecologically say you don't want to have your sense of direction jumping around uh, all the time in complete darkness because you want to maintain your sense of direction to find your door, right? So let's see if uh, it is actually the case. So here, I, uh, I will move this bump to the top and let's see what happens, whether the bump is jumping around or flow or wiggling or smoothly move. So I'm going to move this one to here using optogenetics and stop the stimulation. And you can see that the bump is not jumping around but slowly flowing, right? And of course, we have population data here. So when the uh, bump position changes from here to here, it begins to flow, uh, drift away from the original position. Meaning that this kind of recurrent connection between neighboring neurons is the mechanism of, uh, among the compass neurons. So in summary, I told, uh, we have found two things. One, the unique representation of body orientation in compass neurons is mediated by mutual inhibition among compass neurons. And the persistent activity was maintained by excitatory recurrent connection between neighboring neurons. Now that we have, uh, we have found this kind of structure in the compass neurons, we have next questions. For that, check out this uh, short clip from Ready Player One. So this protagonist transferred from a small van to a vast virtual reality world. It's totally new world, right? It's completely changed, it's suddenly changed. But just looking around a little bit, 
gives him a very stable sense of direction, right? This is very important. The sense of direction, it should be very flexible so that you can develop your sense of direction in a new environment, like outside this room and inside this room. Completely changed, but you should be able to develop your sense of direction very quickly. And it should be very stable once it is developed. Okay? You can see why this flexible yet very stable sense of direction is critical and shared feature across animal kingdom. And our question is how this kind of uh, flexible yet sta stable yet flexible sense of direction is uh, implemented in the brain. And here is another question. So if you remember, uh, if you remember the sense of direction is strongly uh, affected by the visual input. So for example, when you see there's a stock tower, you know where you are and where you are directed. But not all visual features are critical for your sense of direction. For example, flying birds or this kind of um, biking people do not give you any necessary information about your sense of direction, right? And also, when you walk into a new room, uh, walk into a room, you know where the uh, window is, but the color of the wall, or where your clothes are, or the, where the, um, what's that, the frames are hung on, doesn't really give you any information about the structure of the room and the sense of direction. So what are the visual features, critical visual features for navigation or the sense of direction? And uh, how does the brain selectively process those features are the questions that our lab is working on. So these are the questions that I'm interested in. And we use fruit flies. And as you saw today, using fruit flies to answer this kind of question is very effective. And answering these questions will uh, help us understand not just small brain, but the process of our own brain. With that, I thank uh, all the lab members, our lab members, and fantastic collaborators. And that is it. I'll take questions. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.